Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Already study your Bibles this morning. All right, me too. Uh, turn with me to Third John. Third John. And as you get there, I would like to sort of frame up our time. Third, third John is the third of three letters written by John the Beloved, John the Disciple. And though they never contain the word gospel in them, we need to be clear in knowing that they are soaked, deeply saturated in the explanation and mostly application of the gospel. In each letter, John stresses the importance of love towards each other, obedience towards God, and doctrinal faithfulness. But he also emphasizes that these three components are not siloed away into different parts of our lives or are spread out among the body of believers. These are not the spiritual gifts, right? For spiritual gifts, you might say, well, my brother is very hospitable and I'm very generous and this person uh, 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 can preach and speak. And so we don't all have the same gifts, but we complement each other well, right? You understand what I'm saying? Right. But but John is saying that's not what these things are. No, together we have the lot in us and narrowly individually. We have the lot obedience towards God, love towards each other and doctrinal faithfulness. But John also says one is not more important than the other. John repeatedly declares throughout these three letters that the mature believer, the believer whose life is marked by intimacy with God, contains the three. All three aspects, love for neighbor, obedience to God, doctrinal faithfulness, are working together to grow the believer into all that God has called them to be. John makes a powerful proclamation at the beginning of these letters. First John chapter one, verse three, he summarizes his intentions for writing. He says that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we write these things so that our joy may be complete. He means to tell us here that the Jesus he saw, the Jesus he heard, he now proclaims to us. He's proclaiming a Jesus that he himself has experienced sticks closer than a brother. A Jesus who's a revolutionary's revolutionary. A Jesus who is both king and servant, both God and man. A Jesus whose existence is eternally, historically, and experientially constant. Church, this is our Jesus. And he says, we write all of these things. He writes all of these things so that we could experience him, be changed by the truth of who he is, so that our joy may be complete. The saying is true, family, that when you meet Jesus, you could no longer be the same. And John says later in his first letter for the work of transformation, for that perfection in you to be progressive, you need to be among the people of God who are doing the same work and having the same work done in them. 
John says the gospel applied is as much horizontal, as much as you to me, as it is vertical between me and God, you and God. You got to be living together with the children of the elect lady, the church, in love and in the light. That's essentially 1 John, but 2 John, he addresses a doctrinal issue and gives us an interpersonal issue uh, that he needs to talk about. He says, the emphatic declaration here is that Jesus is indeed fully God and fully man. And then like a good big brother, John warns us of deceivers who would be among us slowly confounding our kingdom perspective. John gives us two orders to carry out, practice the truth and protect the truth, right? In other words, John warns us of gospel integrity within us and around us. And we're called to live in light of the gospel and its implications while guarding against those who take away from the gospel. Maybe I'll try and put it to you like this. Second John, in a sentence, is that we practice the truth by protecting the truth while being protected by the one who is the truth. And then we come to third John, a letter that differs from the others in so many ways. This letter is something of a postcard. It's, it's brief. It's direct. It's 15 verses. It's a very specific letter addressed to a very specific person regarding specific people, which is now meant for the church, for us to read and learn from. And we must note that before reading this letter, that our big brother John cares very deeply about the external operation of the Christian being a reflection of the internal state of our heart. I'll say that again. John cares very deeply about the Christian's external operations being a reflection of the internal state of your heart. In other words, what you do is because of who you are. Your outward behavior is born out of an internal working of the heart. And so John writes this letter, 3 John, making assessments of three individuals' character. He writes three heart assessments based on the outward expressions of their character. And in each one, we find for us some instruction. So I want to title our time this morning, Character Counts. Character Counts. As we look to the three persons to which John addresses, and we see in their assessments a commendation, a condemnation, and a recommendation. Commendation, condemnation, recommendation. So would you stand if you are able with me for the reading of God's word and then I want to invite you to pray for me as I pray for you, as together we hear what thus saith the Lord. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers testified your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well 
to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. And from the truth itself, we also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, at this moment and every moment, we need you. We are needy, needy creatures. No matter our supposed independence, we are a people dependent on you. Father, this morning you have chosen this text for these people, including myself. May you gift us with ears to hear, hearts that receive, and hands that do your will. Father, may your word penetrate our hearts. May we, by your spirit's power, be self-reflective looking deeply and honestly at our state. Lord, would you gift me as the preacher with clarity of speech and thought, and would you gift the congregation this morning with attentiveness and grace for my errors in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. June 27th, 1940. Elliot Crawshay Williams was serving as assistant private secretary to Winston Churchill when he wrote Mr. Churchill a letter concerning his views on the United Kingdom's involvement in World War II. His letter read like this. I'm all for winning this war if it can be done, but it does not seem to me and I know to others that if and when an informed view of the situation shows that we've really got no practical chance of an actual ultimate victory, no question of proceeds should stand in the way of our using our nuisance value while we still have one to get the best peace terms possible. He goes on to write, after losing many lives and much money, we shall merely find ourselves in the position of France or worse. I hope this doesn't sound defeatist. I'm not that. Only realist. What Mr. Crochet Williams is suggesting here if you don't know your history, is peace with Nazi Germany. Peace with Adolf Hitler. Because the UK, he feels, has given too many resources, too many lives to a cause, it looks to Mr. Crochet Williams, that is a losing one. Churchill responded the very next day with a handwritten letter that was very brief. I'm going to read the whole thing to you. I am ashamed of you for writing such a letter. I return it to you to burn and forget. 
That is a heck of a reply to get from your boss. I am ashamed that you would think of something so dumb. It's so dumb. I'm giving you back the letter. And I want you to burn it. And I'm going to do you the extra favor of forgetting you even wrote it to me. Now, what does this have to do with third John? Well, John's letter, like Mr. Churchill's letter, is an assessment of someone's character. Although Churchill's letter is addressing the character of one person, John's letter addresses the character of three. A man named Gaius, another man named Diotrephes, and another named Demetrius. Where second John was a letter written to a church, third John is written to a person. Where second John focuses on the reputation or the character of the church, third John points to specific characters for us to learn from. Therefore, third John, although very different from second John, is the natural follow up for us, the church, to read. Let's dig in. Immediately, we are introduced to our first person, a man named Gaius. Look at verse one. Uh, the, uh, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. I don't know about you, but I like writing in my Bible. I like highlighting in my Bible. That's the highlight. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John introduces Gaius to us as someone he loves in the truth so much that he refers to him as beloved and says he prays his physical health goes as well as his soul. Oh, church, we got to learn this. John says, I hope your body is experiencing the same health as your soul is in Jesus. I hope you are experiencing the same freedom, the same prosperity, the same fullness that your soul is. Family, this is more than well wishes. This is more than mere sentimentalism. This is more than the superficial, hey, I hope you're doing good. No, John prays honestly for the earthly needs of his little brother in the faith. And the instruction here is so should we. This is good gospel application. I just don't want to see you come to Jesus. I want that more than anything. Let me be clear. I want that more than anything. But I also want to see you be well. Family, in our pursuit to guard our theology, to protect all that the gospel actually is, may we not forget the call, the need to pray for and seek after each other's health in every way. Physical health, emotional health, financial health, mental health. I could spend my entire time on this verse, but I'll say this and we move on. Our external prosperity, our external health is important, but it is no priority over our spiritual health. Our souls, our spiritual health must be the priority. If not, that's when the sin creeps in. 
We could get so caught up in finances that it becomes greed. We could get so caught up in our physical well-being that it becomes self-righteousness or pride. We could get caught up in our mental health that it becomes manipulation and gaslighting. If we don't nurture our souls first, nothing else will ever be as prosperous to the degree that God desires it to be. Lord, help us with that. After John prays, he writes a commendation for Gaius for three reasons. First, he said, I heard your testimony from others. You are the real deal. You are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear God's children walking in the truth. John makes clear to us as eavesdroppers of this letter to Gaius that objective truth and walking in the truth go together. The head, the heart, and the hands make the believer a faithful follower of Jesus. And hearing this testimony from others of Gaius's life brings John great joy. The Greek construction here supposes that Gaius either came to faith or grew up in the faith because of John. And so th this is like John's spiritual son, right? John's ministry has produced this fruit. Gaius is an extension of the faithful labor of John. Gaius's life, him living on mission, him faithfully laboring to the glory of God brings John a joy that is supreme. Family, this is the heart of our pastors. This is their heart to see their faithful labor in ministry produce in us. A faithfulness that testifies to those outside of us the glory of God. I love Spurgeon's commentary here. He says, no minister ought to be at rest unless he sees that his ministry brings forth fruit and men and women are born unto God by the preaching of the word. It is to this end we are sent to you, not to help you spend your Sundays respectably, nor to quiet your conscience by conducting worship on your behalf. No ministers are sent into the world for a higher purpose. And if your souls are not saved, then we have labored in vain. And if the hands of God were not made, and if in the hands of God we are not made the means of your new birth our sermons and instructions have been a a mere waste of effort and a waste of time to you if not worse to see children born unto God that is the grand thing therefore every preacher longs to be able to talk about his spiritual sons and daughters that's good right however family if I could push us a little bit there's another challenge in this text. It's not as blatant. It's not as clear. But I think it's a point of application for us to take away from. That falls on us parents. Parents, how can we be satisfied only, hear what I'm saying, with our children's cleverness and learning, savviness and business? but not a renewed, transformed heart in their life. How can we be satisfied to merely have them prepared for the battles of this world, but not the battle for their soul? How can we only be satisfied with their high grades and not the crown of glory in heaven that they would receive? 
or their lively personalities with dead spirits. Their wealth, their status and ability, but not the fruit of the spirit or the armor of God. Parents, may we never rest unless we see that our ministry at home brings forth fruit and produces young men and women born unto God. May we not be joyful that they build their treasures where the rust can take it. May we become unrelenting prayer warriors who never stop praying that our children's souls are saved and never stop guiding their little hearts toward their true king. And if you're sitting here with no children of your own, may God reveal to you the children at this place, at the outpouring, sitting in those classrooms for up for spiritual adoption, teach in their classrooms, involve them into your community groups, Pray for them as they sit in front, beside, and behind you. May these children be your spiritual sons and daughters. If you have no kids, your time, your energy is a gift to a fainting and frazzled parent. Just as God has adopted you and moved you from dead stranger to adopted child, I challenge you, if I may, to call up one of these parents this week and pray with them on the phone for their children's salvation. Pray for them that their children might grow in grace. Pray for them that their hearts would be captured this day. You can do it. We need more of this church. Spiritual sons and daughters in this place and in every place. Look, at me, look with me at verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner of in, the, in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that they may be fellow workers for the truth. The next two reasons why John is commending Gaius, he puts together. He names Gaius's faithful service and his generous hospitality toward other laborers and shepherds in the faith, although they were strangers to him. Not part of his church, not not friendly, strangers to him, not from that area. He didn't know who they were, but he received them with gladness and kindness, serving them and meeting their needs. And those ministers went out and testified of Gaius's love and hospitality. Gaius acted towards these teachers of the word consistently with what he believed. In other words, what Gaius knew to be true informed how he was to behave. Let me put this in more context for you. In the first century, strangers were considered dangerous. People didn't travel much or sightsee like you and I might do. Ain't no method of transportation for that. Okay. They couldn't just get up and go to an entirely different town or city. We're talking about days travel to do that. Your day to day in the first century was almost always going to see the same people at the same place, at the same time, at the same hour. And so the concept of somebody else coming into that space. Dangerous. You might have heard of stranger danger. 
We have no concept of stranger danger today. No, we don't. Right? You go to a theme park. Hundreds of thousands of strangers. And if you're park hopping, close to a million. You trusted a stranger to construct a piece of metal to go 80 miles an hour for 80 seconds in 80 different directions. And you trust the strangers to go on the ride with you. You trust strangers to make your food. There's no concept. We don't have the concept that they had of stranger danger. I'm just trying to paint a picture for you to understand why John is mentioning this. Okay. You trust strangers with your phone. You never done that? You say, can you take a picture of us? You trust a stranger to make your phone that you're going to put your whole life in. And then you're going to trust a stranger to take that phone to take a picture of you. So then you could put it on the Internet full of strangers so that strangers could like, comment and share behind your back with other strangers. You have no concept of stranger danger compared to the first century Christian. To the first century person, strangers were suspicious. To even come into a city or a town that you did not belong in, you had to get vetted. You needed somebody of respect, somebody of renown to say, no, 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 he with me, he good, he good. Right? And then everybody would go, what Gaius has done is taken these ministers who were strangers. He didn't know them. And every commentator agrees that what he did was he gave them food, entertainment, money, a place to stay, encouragement, and prayer. And John says that Gaius honored God, honored the gospel, and honored John as his spiritual father. The instruction here to us is clear. Faithfully serve and generously minister to ministers of the gospel, to the men and women on the front lines of our faith experiencing danger that you and I would never experience in this kind of context. And that is what Gaius did. But there's a challenge also in here. If I could push a little bit again. The challenge here is to support our brothers and sisters laboring in the gospel. John gives three reasons why we should help those whom God has called out, sent out to be on the front, on the front lines, church planters and missionaries. He says, first, they go out for the sake of the name. This is the only time Jesus is clearly implied in the letter. And it's because it's in his name ministers take to the neighborhoods and the nations, not their own. It is his gospel that they proclaim, not their own. Be weary of any minister or missionary, local or abroad, who carries within them a desire to preach to their fame. Second, they accepted nothing from pagans or unbelievers. This is an important one. In other words, John says these ministers did not attempt to finance God's work with the world's money. That's challenging. They depended on the generosity and gifts of the church, their fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. These ministers, like our missionary and planters today, still depend completely on the generosity of their brothers and sisters to be able to carry on the mission of God that he has called them to. They depend not on a consistent and frequent paycheck on the first and 15th like you might. 
But they spend every week wondering, will God provide? I'll move on. Third kind of ties into the second. John says, we ought to support such people so that we can be co-workers in the truth. John says, you may not be able to physically go where they go, but you can still go with them anywhere they go by your generous support. Basically, in the way that you support them, you are with them. Everyone, we must notice, everyone is called to pray. Everyone is called to give, but only some are called to be sent out. Some, only some are graciously burdened in this particular way. Only some will be judged more severely than others. And yet everyone is essential as we work together in the work of God. Daniel Aiken prays, God multiply the sent and God multiply the supporters. Gaius Gaius possesses a character worthy for us to imitate, but not everyone in the church had such character. John writes a condemning word about Diotrephes. Look at verse nine. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. That's like, if you, if you think like me, there's like gunshots in the background of that, right? I'm going to come and talk to him. Bow, bow, bow. So if I come, I'm going to bring up what he's doing. And not content with that, He refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. John does not mince words here. He is taking serious issue with Diotrephes' actions and words. Diotrephes, he had a harmful and destructive agenda. He wanted to be the head. He wanted to be the boss in the church. He was selfish, only loving himself, leading in a, in, in a way that exalted his perverted ambition and dominating spirit. He was opposite to John and Gaius, creating the very thing that God hates, discord among the body of believers. Undeserved, unnecessary disunity. Because of diatrophies, people are rejecting the truth. They are turning away from the teachings of John because of diatrophies. There's an unwelcoming spirit among the body, not accepting others who wish to join the household of faith because of diatrophies. The work of Satan is successful in the church. Our enemy seeks always to create disunity among the people of God family. This is why the scriptures are full with directives and encouragements to maintain unity, togetherness, the bonds between us. We are supposed supposed to be tight-knit, always striving for singularity of purpose. That is what unity is. The many working towards the one goal. If I could put it to you like this, the NBA finals are currently on. The two best teams in the league are presently fighting in a best of seven series for gold and glory. Each team might have a leader or leaders but relying on them to do all the work is not how you win ball games. Any coach or former player of organized ball would tell you, hero ball don't win games. In a sport like that, your lead guys can only take you so far. And toxic leaders like Diotrephes here are reaching the end. It's not, it's not what happens. 
Receiving the recognition for all your faithful labor this season and off season goes only to the team that was united. They weren't perfect. They had conflict. They had injury. They had distraction. But what counts is seeing the end together. When you have a guy like Diotrephes leading the charge, you don't make it to the end. See, John wrote a letter to this church before, encouraging them, uniting them. But Diotrephes didn't even allow it to be read. John says, hold up, we need to address this. This man is not loving the body. He's creating conflict between us. But how could John warn the church if his letters are blocked? John's left writing to someone he can count on. Someone whose reputation among the people is worthy enough to speak out against what's happening. A trusted name in the household. That's Gaius. Family, we need to be able to address among ourselves those who would take away from the body. That's hard, but it's true. Those who operate only in self-interest and self-protection, those who gatekeep the truth of God in exchange for their own narrative, who prop themselves up and their convictions instead of what is good for the church. John says when such a person is in power, someone with a good reputation, with good character, can be trusted to speak out on behalf of righteousness. John says, Gaius, you're my guy. And he lays out four reasons why diatrophies must be condemned. I'll go through them quickly. One, prideful ambition. Diotrephes, John says, puts himself first. He's number one, captain of the ship, the boss, the CEO, the head of the table, and the main attraction. Diotrephes assumes a place that is only meant for Jesus. Colossians 1.18 says, Jesus is to have first place in everything. Family, this is a warning of pride to us. Be it leader or layman in this place, guest or gospel partner, do not be driven by prideful ambition. Gaius's only ambition was to see the gospel go forth. Diotrephes' ambition was to be head of the church. Second, domineering arrogance. Diotrephes didn't receive John or his missionaries. Diotrephes wanted to exercise authority in the church and his ego couldn't allow room for other teachers, preachers, or influencers. Because of this, the church was in rebellion, not acknowledging any other authority, including John, who saw Jesus, heard Jesus, saw him crucified, visited the empty tomb, walked with the risen Christ where Gaius served in humility, offering all he could to fellow laborers of the gospel. Diotrephes did all he could to prop himself up and keep everyone else out. Third, slanderous speech. John says he, Diotrephes, spoke wicked nonsense against us. The Greek here is literally bringing false charges against us with evil words. He's not just gossiping. You understand what I'm saying? He's taking it up another level. He's like gossiping and cussing and gossiping and cussing again. It's bad. It is no doubt that this self-willed leader, this self-appointed head of the church, did his best to tear down the reputation of those whom he was not prepared to receive. It is as the Proverbs say, Proverbs 10, 18, whoever utters slander is a... Y'all got to read your Bibles. No, no. Fool. That's that's the text, not me. Where Gaius spoke words of encouragement and prayer to the ministers, Diotrephes operated in foolish, wicked, evil slander to the faithful. 
Last one, he withheld hospitality. He not only creates disunity by refusing hospitality to laborers of the gospel, but he prevents others from providing hospitality by kicking them out of the church. He not only partakes in unfaithfulness, he punishes the faithful in everyone else. It's bad enough not to support ministers. Now you're going to make sure nobody else can too. Gaius, however, showed them great hospitality, feeding them, giving them money, giving them a place to sleep, praying for them, encouraging them. Diotrephes won't even let them come into the church. Family, know this. It's not the sum of all four acts that causes John to write. Diotrephes just happens to be operating in all four. Any one of these can be among us. None of us are exempt from operating quietly or loudly in such a way in pride, arrogance, slander, inhospitable dispositions. These are all struggles for all Christians, leaders or not. Each one of us can fall prey to these kinds of behaviors. We must watch ourselves, watch our motives, our decisions and our tongues and fight to bring praise to the name of Jesus with all our all our lives. John says, let us be of God. Let us be of God. Let the source of our actions, the source of our words, the source of our motives be from the one who never partakes in evil. Be from the one whom light and love exude. Be from the one who knows all things. Be from the one whose power and glory are unmatched. Be from the one who takes up every square inch of the cosmos. Let our whole lives, family, be of God. At the end of the letter, John writes a short recommendation for a brother named Demetrius. Look at verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. He directs hospitality to a specific person. Gaius and the church are to receive Demetrius and show him love and provision. And John gives us a threefold testimony of his character. John says he's received good testimony from everyone. He's well-liked, well-respected, and admired among his brethren. He says he's received testimony from the truth itself. All John means here is that Demetrius walks like Gaius in the truth. These are thorough brothers. They are the real deal. They take seriously the call to live in a manner worthy of the gospel he received. And lastly, John adds a personal touch. He says, I recommend him so much that I put my own testimony on the line for him. And you know his testimony is firm. John co-signs for Demetrius, vouches for him to be received by Gaius and the church to be supported by them, to be encouraged by them, to be uplifted by them, to have his needs met by them. I want to close with two questions and a fourth character assessment. Think about this. Could we, could you, could I receive the same recommendations as Demetrius? Could you? Are you so intimately Connected to Jesus and intimately connected to your family here. That someone here could write for you such a recommendation. Second question. Could we be trusted? Could you be trusted? Could I be trusted? 
could we as a body be trusted to receive someone in the same way? Could we not only just trust the institution of the church, who everyone gives to, there's some form of benevolence budget, right? But not, not that. Could we individually meet the need of a brother like this? John told Gaius, you take Demetrius. It's a personal letter, remember? John says, you take Demetrius. Could these recommendations be written of you? Are you well-liked, well-respected among your family here? Do others testify that you walk in the truth? Could one of your pastors be ready and willing to give up their credibility to recommend you? We've been given much to consider and address within ourselves using the reputations of these men. But there is in here a fourth reputation, a fourth character. A character so good, he didn't even have to be named here, but you already know who he is. He is the very foundation upon which John, Gaius, and Demetrius have built their character on. Did you catch it? Did you listen for it? When you read this letter, did you find him? In case you didn't, can I introduce him to you? I'll do it anyway. His name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And his character is what happens when majesty meets humility, when justice meets mercy, when love meets grace. Can I talk to you about him? He's Adam without the fall, Noah without the drink, Abraham without the doubt, Jacob without the favoritism, Moses without the anger. He's Samson without the rule breaking. Can I keep going? He's more faithful than Boaz, a better king than David, a better protector than Jonathan. He's wiser than Solomon. He's more dead than Elijah, and he's more alive than him too. He's Hezekiah's counselor. He reigned longer than Nebuchadnezzar, and he chronicled it all for us to see. He's a better priest than Ezra. He's a better layman than Nehemiah. He's more major than the major prophets, and he's more meek than the minor ones too. And though he was silent for 400 years, years. He never stopped working and his cousin declared his coming. He is the father inaugurated, the Holy Spirit consummated, crucified, died and alive again, seated at the right hand of God and he's coming back and he's coming back as a judge of your character. And when we stand before him, we get to say, like John, like Gaius, like Demetrius, his character counts for me because he was commended by the Father. Now no condemnation comes to me, and I recommend him to you this morning. Stand with me. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.